Welcome to the Temple Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from Swan River, Manitoba, Canada. This week, we join Pastor Neil Effa as he preaches from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 in the fifth part of a sermon series called Character Under Construction, with this message from June 30th titled Steadfastness, Triumphant Endurance. to take your Bibles at this time and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. In April of 2015, an earthquake stuck, uh, struck Kathmandu in Nepal. 8,675 people died and nearly 22,000 others were injured. It was the most significant quake since the devastating quake of 1934, where it is estimated that up to 12,000 people died. But what killed so many people in the 2015 quake was not the quake itself, but the poorly designed and constructed buildings. A rush to provide housing in urban environments and a lack of funds combined to produce a very dangerous environment. Officials knew that it was just a matter of time before another quake would occur. However, they failed to design and construct buildings that would withstand earthquakes. Tragically, around three quarters of all deaths in earthquakes are due to building collapses, not the quakes themselves. And I think that there is a parallel to the Christian life. It is not so much the storms of life that devastate Christians. Rather, it is their poorly constructed lives. It is not so much life circumstances that cause a believer to turn from their faith. Rather, in many cases, they never took time to develop a character that would help them face life circumstances. We are presently in a preaching series, which I have titled Character Under Construction, a series from 2 Peter chapter 1. And I have suggested to you that although we are better than what we once were, we are not yet what we ought to be. Because God is in the process of shaping and molding our lives into the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. He is in the process of forming our character so we can handle and face whatever life throws at us, whatever may come our way. And I also suggested that it might be helpful if we wore a sign around our neck that read construction zone. Because if we did, it would be a visible reminder that God is not finished with us yet. It would be a visible reminder that we need to be patient with each other. And it would be a visible reminder that we as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ are to help each other in character development. The apostle Peter began his second epistle by giving us a necessary foundation for character formation, character development. And he said that this foundation is built on two important truths. The first truth is that God has given us everything we need to develop a character that would bring glory to him. In other words, there is absolutely no excuse for us not to experience a transformation of character. God has given us every necessary resource to grow in godliness. And Peter said the second truth that we must build our life upon is that we must make every effort to be godly. You see, although God has given us everything necessary to grow in godliness, it won't happen automatically. It requires effort and discipline on our part. 
In other words, you and I need to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. We need to partner with the Holy Spirit if we're going to see change taking place within us. It requires effort on our part to be godly. Having then given to us this, this necessary foundation, Peter continued by listing the good or the godly qualities that must define our lives. He says that once we place our faith and trust in Jesus for salvation, we are then to supplement that faith with eight important qualities. And here is what he says. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Thus far in this series, we have talked about virtue or moral courage. We discovered from scripture that a virtuous person will be courageous to do the right thing, regardless of temptation to sin and the pressures to conform to the world. The Old Testament character Daniel visibly displayed virtue as he, a Jew, served King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Daniel was courageous to stand for truth, for righteousness, for integrity, as he served in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. And we have talked about the importance of knowledge. The kind of knowledge that we need to grow in Christ-likeness is a knowledge of Christ himself. We need to grow in our knowledge about Christ and in our knowledge of Christ. In other words, knowledge of Christ is not only information, but rather, and more importantly, it is relationship. The apostle Paul in the book of Philippians said that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection. This was Paul's consuming passion. He wanted to know Christ. He wanted to be growing in intimate fellowship with his Lord and savior, Jesus. And then we also spent some time talking about the quality of self-control. The self-controlled person is the one who has mastered his desires and his passions, especially his sensual appetites. You may recall that we studied the life of Samson, who lived a life out of control. Although his accomplishments are legendary, he's notorious for his lack of self-control. He was an incredibly strong man with a very weak will. Now this leads us to the fourth quality in Peter's list, the quality of steadfastness. And so follow with me as we examine what God wants us to learn about supplementing our faith with steadfastness. And we're going to begin by defining this word. Now your translation of the Bible may not use the word steadfastness as the English standard version does. For example, the King James version uses the word patience. The new international version uses the word perseverance and the new revised standard version uses the word endurance. And so the Greek word, which is translated either steadfastness or patience or perseverance or endurance is really a com compound word. It means to abide and it has a prefix that means under. So it literally means to abide under or to stay under. In other words, steadfastness is the capacity to hold out or to bear up, especially in the face of difficulty. 
Steadfastness has to do with the circumstances of life. It has to do with our trials, with our difficulties, with our hardships. It's not so much having patience or endurance or steadfastness with difficult people, but rather having patience and endurance and perseverance and steadfastness in difficult circumstances. Commentator William Barclay describes steadfastness in this way. He writes, steadfastness does not describe a grim resignation or a passive grin and bear attitude, but a triumphant facing of difficult circumstances, knowing that even out of evil, God guarantees good. It is courageous gallantry, which accepts suffering and hardship and turns them into grace and glory. For believers, it is trusting God to enable them to remain under or endure whatever challenges, trials, tests, afflictions he providentially allows in their lives. Therefore, it is a virtue which can endure not simply with resignation, but with a vibrant hope. It is the ability to deal triumphantly with anything that life can do to us. It accepts the blows of life, but in accepting them, transforms them into stepping stones to new achievements. For example, William Carey, the father of modern missions, wanted to translate the Bible into as many Indian languages as possible. He established a large print shop in where translation work was done. And he spent hours each day translating scripture. And then one night, his print shop, the very place where Bibles were being printed, burned to the ground. Yet Carey persevered and he went forward and accomplished his goal. The secret of his success is found in his steadfast determination. He once wrote, there are grave difficulties on every hand and more are looming ahead. Therefore, we must go forward. Do you hear in his words, triumphant hope and, and victory? We must go forward knowing, even though that there are more difficulties looming ahead. Let me further illustrate steadfastness in this way. When you see a bridge such as the magnificent Golden Gate Bridge, you must realize that engineers take into account three loads or three stresses. They take into, these, the, the, into consideration these loads or stresses as they design the bridge. There is the dead load, the live load, as well as the wind load. The dead load is the weight of the bridge itself. And the live load is the weight of the daily traffic that the bridge must carry. And the wind load is the pressure of the storms that beat upon, upon the bridge. The designer plans for bracings. They plan for supports that will enable the bridge to bear all of these loads. And in our lives too, we need bracings. We need supports that will make it possible for us to hold out or to bear up in the face of life's difficulties. Whether it is a dead load of self, the live load of daily living and all the demands that come upon us from day to day, or the wind load of emergencies, those things that we don't expect to come upon us. Steadfastness is embracing the support which helps us withstand these various stresses. And when we are steadfast, our lives become useful, they become stable, and they become durable. You and I know that life is full of difficulties and trials. 
We are tempted to run from them or to become bitter because of them. And you and I know that the devil wants us to quit, to cave in, to, to the pressure and to give up completely. But God wants us to develop steadfastness so that we bravely endure trials without swerving from our loyalty to him. How then does a person develop the ability to bear up in the face of difficulty? How does one develop endurance so as to withstand the storms of life? Things such as sickness and death and unemployment and financial struggles and divorce or, or not being accepted into a particular university or into a program of study. How does a person triumphantly move forward when faced with the stresses and the pressures of life? Because you and I know that the pursuit of steadfastness is an uphill climb that is difficult. I think that the key to true steadfastness is your view of God. When you are convinced that God is wise and loving and acting on your behalf, then you patiently rest in him. When you believe that he is indeed working all things for the good of those who love him, you remain steadfast. When you believe he holds the frustrations of your work, the needs of your marriage and family and longings of your heart close to his own, you stay the course and persevere in life's challenges. John Gossip, and I think I'm pronouncing his last name right, pastor of the Beach Grove Church in Aberdeen, Scotland in the 1920s. When his wife died in 1927, he didn't know at first how he would survive. Although he was a minister and had helped many others through times of crisis, he faced his own personal moment of truth. How would he reconcile his own loss with the Christian faith he claimed to believe? The first sermon he delivered after the sudden passing of his wife in 1927 is regarded as one of the greatest he ever preached. <clears throat> in fact, he is remembered as a preacher primarily for that one particular sermon. He titled his message, but when life tumbles in, what then? And in it, he struggled to reconcile his Christian faith with the loss of his loved one. But in that sermon, he said, I do not understand this life of ours, but still less can I comprehend how people in trouble and loss and bereavement can fling away peevishly from the Christian faith in God's name fling to what have we not lost enough without losing that too? And how right he was as he put it. So many people's religion is a fair weather affair, a little rain and it runs and crumbles a touch of strain and it snaps. But if we turn from faith in the time of trouble, what shall we turn to? When life, when life crashes in against us and all that we value most is taken from us, if we then give up our faith, where will we go? And what will we do? Pastor Gossip put it this way in his sermon. You people in the sunshine may believe the faith, but we in the shadow must believe it. We have nothing else. We do not gain if we turn away from God in the time of trouble. If we turn away from God, we lose our only ground of hope. As he came to the end of his sermon, he said, I don't think you need to be afraid of life. Our hearts are very frail 
And there are places where the road is very steep and very lonely, but we have a wonderful God. And indeed we do have a wonderful God. Do you remember what the apostle Paul said at the end of Romans chapter eight? He asked this question, what can separate us from the love of God? And his conclusion is nothing at all. Not life, not death, not tragedy, nor heartbreak, nor suffering. We are forever connected to his love with cords a thousand times stronger than steel. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Through our tears, we rest our confidence in one great truth that he who brought us this far will take us safely home. Paul in the book of Romans helps us to develop a proper understanding, a proper view of who God is an understanding that will develop within us steadfast endurance, perseverance, patience. And in so doing, he came to at least the uh, three conclusions. He said, because God is good. We, we know that he has our best interests at heart. This truth gets to the heart of Romans eight twenty eight. If you believe God is good, you can endure things that would break most people. You can live with unanswered questions as long as you believe in the goodness of God. But once you start doubting his goodness, you will either walk away from the faith or you will become a very bitter Christian. But it is important to remember that God's goodness isn't determined by our happiness. Apparently in the Methodist churches of Nigeria, whenever the church gathers, the speaker will say hallelujah. And everybody responds with amen. And when the speaker says, God is good with one voice, they reply all the time. And they have it right. God is good all the time. His goodness and his mercy endure forever. That is true regardless of our personal moment by moment experience. Because God is good. We know that he has our best interests at heart. But Paul also came to this conclusion regarding the character and nature of God. He said, because God is wise, nothing is ever wasted in our experience. Romans 8, 29 tells us that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Think of a sculpture sitting down before a hunk of marble on the outside. The marble looks ugly and unformed, but the sculptor sees something beautiful inside that hunk of marble. So with hammer and chisel, he begins to chip away. For many weeks, perhaps months or even years, he shapes, he cuts, and he polishes until little by little, an image emerges from the stone. On and on he works, never stopping until the sculpture is complete. What was once ugly is now a thing of beauty. And in a similar way, God takes a hammer and the chisel of human trial, of suffering and pain, to shape us into the image of Jesus. And in those moments when we feel that God has simply hammered us into the ground, we discover later nothing was done in anger. Nothing was done in haste. Nothing was done in waste, but everything was according to his plan. So that in the end, we might be beautiful like Jesus himself. The most beautiful Christians are those who have been through suffering 
and have come through it with their faith in God intact. They have displayed the virtue of steadfastness. They haven't given in or given up because of the bracing, the support of steadfastness. They have not buckled or collapsed in the howling storms of life. And so if you feel the heavy weight of God hammering down on you, rest assured that nothing is being wasted. Everything has a purpose. In the end, God will be glorified and you will be even more beautiful than you ever dreamed possible. But Paul also came to this conclusion regarding the character and the nature of God. And we sang about it this morning. Bernard read a passage that focused upon God's love because God is love. He will not leave you alone in your pain. This is a promise of the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. God will come to you. You may not feel it or believe it, but it is true for he has promised it. In fact, 2000 years ago, he came for you. God proved his love when he sent his son, Jesus into the sin cursed world. He didn't have to do it. He chose to do it. He did what we would never do. He voluntarily sacrificed his one and only son. He not only sent him to earth, he stood by and watched Jesus die a terrible, bloody death. So after Calvary, God has nothing left to prove to anyone. There is no way that anyone can doubt his love after looking at the bleeding form of Jesus hanging on that cross. You see, when you and I understand the goodness of God and the wisdom of God and the love of God, we grow in steadfastness. Our endurance increases. We're able to bear up and hold out in the storms of life. Therefore, seek to know God. Seek to know him as your loving, your merciful, your faithful, your omnipotent, your caring father. In scripture, we have an example of an individual who displayed steadfastness. I think you're rather familiar with him. His story is found in the book that bears his name. But I want you to listen to what the New Testament author, the brother of Jesus, wrote about this Old Testament character. In James chapter 5, verse 11, we read, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James describes Job as steadfast. James readers who were Jewish Christians scattered probably by persecution, many of them living in poverty would have known well the story of Job. It's a great Old Testament story of the righteous sufferer. Job was a man of unparalleled and genuine piety. He was also a man of well-deserved prosperity. He was a godly man, extremely wealthy, a fine husband, a faithful father. But in a quick and brutal sweep of back-to-back calamities, Job was re- reduced to a twisted mass of brokenness and grief. Through those calamities, Job is left bankrupt, homeless, helpless, and childless. He's left standing beside the 10 fresh graves of his now dead children. 
His wife is heaving deep sobs of grief as she kneels beside him. Although she has just heard her husband say, whether our God gives to us or takes everything from us, we will follow him. She leans over and whispers, just curse God and die. Mystery and misery are added to insult and injury of Job's real life disasters. As he sits there covered with skin ulcers that have begun to erupt with pus, swelling his body with fever and giving him a maddening itch that will not cease. He looks up into the faces of three friends who arrive on the scene. They sit and they stare at Job for seven days and nights without uttering a word. They don't recognize him, which tells you something of the extent of his swelling and the sores that covered his body. The sight causes them to be at loss for words for a full week. Unfortunately, they didn't remain silent. When they finally did speak, they had nothing to say but blame, accusation, and insult. Though they shaped their cutting remarks in much more philosophical and spiritual terms, they proved unmerciful. And with that, Job's pain only intensified. His misery turns to mystery with God's silence. If the words, if the words of his so-called friends are hard to hear, the silence of God becomes downright intolerable for him. Not until the 38th chapter of the book does God finally break the silence. Try to imagine you become the object of your alleged friends accusations and the heavens are brass as you plead for answers from God himself who remains mysteriously mute. Nothing comes to you by way of comfort. It's all so unfair. You've done nothing to deserve such anguish. And this is a story that James has in mind when he says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The compassionate mercy of God is demonstrated at the end of the book. When God finally speaks, when God finally addresses Job's situation, he finally comes and he speaks to Job and reveals himself to Job. And then he restores Job's fortunes. Everything that Job has lost is in some way restored. There's some kind of compensation. Job is more blessed at the end than he was at the beginning. But I want you to note that Job's story and experiences mirror the themes of the gospel. Suffering, endurance, resurrection. Our savior, Jesus Christ, suffered at the hands of ungodly men. He endured the cross but he was resurrected from the grave. There's a resurrection at the end of the story because God is compassionate and he is merciful. You see, our stories also mirror the themes of the gospel. However, you and I are still in the middle of our story. We don't see the end yet. We don't see the res restoration yet. We are not in the resurrection yet. So again, we have to look to the end. And God has given to us the conclusion of our story, so to speak. We have it in the story of Job. 
We have it in the story of the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. And we have it in the promise in the book of Revelation. There's a resurrection at the end of the story. Why? Because God is compassionate and God is merciful. Therefore, we steadily trust the purpose and the character of God. That is his compassion and his mercy. And in so doing, we persevere. In so doing, we endure. In so doing, we remain steadfast and immovable. Sir Winston Churchill was invited back to the university he once attended to address the students near the end of his storied life of public service, a life which included guiding Britain through her darkest as well as her finest hours. When that five foot five inch bulldog of a man took the platform, everyone waited breathlessly upon his words and they would never forget what they heard. He stood before the students and said, young gentlemen, never give up, never give up, never give up, never, never, never. And with that, he sat down. And that's what Peter is calling believers to diligently live out in their faith. What he's calling you and I to live out in our faith. We are to supplement, to add to our faith, steadfastness. Are you about to give up? Don't do it. God wants you to be steadfast, to endure trials bravely without swerving from your loyalty to him. You and I must be. Uh, persevere. Why? Because we know what is coming. We know that there's going to be restoration, that there's going to be resurrection, that there's going to be reward. But in order to do so, we must believe that God is good, that God is wise, that God is love. Believe that he is our strength, our rock, our refuge, our deliverer. Believe that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Depend on the Holy Spirit for divine strength and power. Joyfully accept each trial as an opportunity to grow in steadfastness for God's glory. So stand strong. Draw near to God. Remain loyal to the Lord. And never give up. Never. 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 Bow with me as I pray. Heavenly Father, you know where we are in our Christian experience. You know how strong we are in our walk with you. And you know how fragile our walk with you may be right now. And Father, I pray that if someone has a fragile faith, where they are perhaps hanging on with a thin string. Father, I pray that they would trust in you, that they would cast themselves upon you. Father, that they would bind themselves to you as you with them with those strong cords of steel that nothing can break. Father, I pray that we would not allow the events of our life to ruin us, to shipwreck us, to cause us to walk away from the one that 
died for us, that gave his life for us. For Father, as we are reminded of the words of John Gossip, fling to what? If we leave you, where do we go to? So Father, I pray that we would add to our faith steadfastness, that we would supplement our faith with endurance and perseverance and with patience in the difficulties of life, doing so through the power of your Holy Spirit, all for your honor and your glory, knowing what is yet to take place, that restoration, that resurrection, when you will make all things new. We give you glory and honor and praise. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us. We hope we were able to provide wisdom and insight in your faith journey. If you would like to connect with us, you are welcome to join our service every Sunday morning at 1030. For more information, you can find us at facebook.com slash TBC Swan River. And if you would like to find more episodes of our podcast, go to anchor.fm slash Temple Baptist Church or search on your favorite podcast app.